Our limitations, self-doubt, and limiting beliefs about ourselves. Why do we give them so much power? I'm Simon Caruso, and this is the Limitless Man Podcast, speaking to those who doubted their own doubts and overcame limitations to pursue their very own limitless potential. Hey everyone, just a heads up on the sound quality for this particular podcast. It's pretty ordinary because I actually forgot to set up my mic and I didn't realize until the podcast was finished. So my humble apologies for that. I hope you still get something out of it and you enjoy the conversation. Guys, welcome to another episode. Today's guest I'm pretty excited about because we caught up about six weeks ago and we just had a sort of a chat off air. He's got an amazing story, this guy. He's from the US, from Colorado. He's a former college basketball athlete. He's a former SWAT team hostage negotiator, but he's also had cancer as well over the years. And in 2018, he actually got his foot amputated. And in 2020, he got his leg amputated as well. He is also the founder of Motivational Check. And today we're going to talk about the 10 principles leading to your uncommon and extraordinary life, as well as the four truths, which he speaks about as well. Terry Tucker, welcome to the Limitless Man podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Simon. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I am as well. And like I said, we, we caught up about six weeks ago and you've got a pretty unique story. Just t- tell us from the start. So obviously, athletically gifted or you must have worked super hard. You played college basketball. So was that always a dream of yours to make to the big time, perhaps the NBA? Um, how did that all sort of unfold for you? It it did. Actually, I I grew up on the south side of Chicago here in the United States. I am the oldest of three boys. You you can't tell this from my voice from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. I have a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher at the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted in professional basketball here in the States. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on with that. But our, our five-foot-eight-inch mother was always the boss. And she was also always running to the store to get milk and meat and all that kind of stuff with, with three growing sons and that. So I was, I was very lucky. I, when I started playing basketball, I was like nine years old. And I just happened, just by luck, to get on the same team as the son of the assistant basketball coach for Ohio State University, which is a very large university here in the United States. And that kind of opened the door, sort of lit the fuse for my interest in basketball. And I was so fortunate. I I was able to play in college. I got to play against some great teams. I got to play against Michael Jordan when he was a freshman uh, in college. Yeah. And, and, and some other, uh, some other, teams that, you know, went went on to win national championships here in the United States. So I was incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I had. And I really did try to make the best of those opportunities. And I I was able to play college basketball after having three knee surgeries in high school. So I I was really fortunate in that regard. How long did you play college basketball for? All four years. All four years? And so when did the realization sort of kick in that you weren't going to go to the NBA, um, it wasn't going to happen? Was it something that you knew in advance or was it a shock when that happened for you? How did that all play out? 
I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to make it. Like I said, I was very lucky to play college basketball after having three knee surgeries. So just the fact that I was able to play in college, I mean, and then to take it to the next level with, with the way my knee was and my knee really, I actually ended up having a fourth surgery right before my final year, final season of basketball in college. So, I mean, four knee surgeries, you know, NBA plays, you know, 82 games. Yeah. I mean, I was having a hard time playing 30 games. So 82 games would have been almost impossible. Yeah. Okay. And so what happened from there? So you realized that that's gone. So what did you do straight after college? Because my understanding is obviously you were in the SWAT team and did that happen immediately? Was there something else sort of that took place before that? No, actually there was. I, uh, there's sort of a backstory. If you look at my resume, my first job uh, was in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, uh, in their marketing department. That was my first job out of college. Uh, after that, I switched and I, I went into hospital administration. And then I made the pivot to law enforcement. And the backstory behind that is my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954, and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle uh, in 1933. But my dad always remembered the stories. My dad was an infant at the time, but he remembered the stories my grandmother told of that knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. And when I graduated from college, my dad had cancer. My dad was dying. And so I had a choice. I could have said, you know, sorry, dad, I've got to go sort of spread my wings, find my purpose and go into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you. I will do what you want me to do and go into business. And that's exactly what I did because my mom and dad gave us, my brothers and I, just great lives. And so I wasn't about to abandon my, my family at the time. So I, that's what I did. And I sort of joke. I did what every good son did, mm. waited till my father passed away, and then I followed my dreams. Yeah. And how did that happen then? So obviously your father passed away. How do you find yourself as a SWAT team hostage negotiator? That, that's pretty intense, I would have thought. And there'd be some level of, you know, testing, training to get to that point. Can you just run that through with us as well? Yeah. It, I mean, usually your next door neighbor is not a, a hostage negotiator. You know, that's not somebody, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're, <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. I, you know, I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, and, and, and that's how I started. I started with everybody else. I spent five years or so, um, you know, running a beat in a marked car in uniform, answering the radio, doing that kind of stuff. And then there was an opening on the SWAT team for a hostage negotiator. And so I, I applied and I had to do the physical fitness. You know, you had to run some, so many, so whatever the time was for the mile and a half. You had to do so many push-ups and sit-ups. You had to meet with the police psychologist. You had to take tests. Uh, the supervisors on SWAT met with your old bosses to see what kind of a person you were. And, and you went through this whole process. And, and eventually I was fortunate enough to be chosen to be part of the team. And it really was a team. It wasn't just one person that was doing it. 
And, and the way we would train every month and we would train in a scenario based type of, of situation. And we worked with a psychologist. So we would, we would do a training, we would do a scenario and then we would come back and debrief. It's like, what'd you think about this? Did you think this person maybe was schizophrenic and off their medicine? I mean, so it was really kind of on the job training. You know, you, I, I had to wait a few years in all honesty before I actually was able to be the primary negotiator to somebody, but it was a lot of fun. I worked with great people. And I'll tell you, I learned a lot of things that actually I even use today, or I can kind of know when people are sort of using those things on me. And uh, it's sometimes it's kind of funny when it happens. Well, what did you learn? What would you say is the biggest learning you got from that experience? Because like you said, and we had a laugh about it before, not many people, well, I don't know anyone that's done a job like this before. So, yeah, I can imagine there'd be some heated situations at times. Um, is it like that? You know, what did you find it was heated? Was it calmer than what you thought it would be for the majority of the time? And, and what did you actually get out of it personally? Yeah, I, I mean, yes to all of your questions. <laughs> it, it literally, I mean, there are times when it's it's really intense, it's really serious. Then there are times, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a funny quick story. Um, usually you don't talk to a person about coming out until much later into the conversation. It could be hours into a conversation with somebody before you start talk, talking to them about coming out. But this individual, he was a, uh, was, he was drunk and he had barricaded himself in his house with a gun and he had his wife as a hostage. And I just happened to get to the scene fairly early as everybody was kind of setting up. And I was talking to the uniform officers. And I'm like, do you have him on the phone? Like, yeah, we're talking to him right now. So I took over from them and we started talking. And after about 15 minutes, I just kind of had this feeling with this guy. I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. And I was like, wait a minute. If I gave you a beer, do I have your word you would let your wife go and that you would come out peacefully? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? And I said, you have my word you could drink it, but will you come out peacefully? So he said, yes. So I gave $5 to one of the officers. I said, get out of the store and get a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch and I called them back. I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it. Until your wife comes out, you put the gun down and you come out with your hands up. Yeah. All of a sudden, the front door flies open and here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink the beer, and off to jail he went. So that was kind of a that was kind of a funny one. They don't usually work out that way. I, I guess I learned a lot of things doing that. Part of it is you've got to think of it sort of as, as a relationship. You're trying to, you know, just like a a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a boss or a subordinate, you're trying to develop trust with this individual who you don't know and who doesn't know you. And that's why I say a lot of times we'll spend two, three hours over here talking about one thing when the real issue is over here, but we haven't developed that trust with the person. So that was one big thing. The other thing we, we learned to use silence to our advantage. So yeah. people would talk. And then they would stop talking and we wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't say anything. We wouldn't ask another question or do anything. And then they would get uncomfortable with the silence to start talking again. So that's another thing I learned. The other, the other important thing, and I think we all could learn more, probably do this more often, is the importance of listening. And I'm sure you're honest, like, well, of course, dummy, you know, it's listening. Everybody listen. 
But I'm not talking about listening to respond. I'm talking about listening to understand. And that was the big thing that we had to do. We would ask you an open-ended question. You would talk for a while. And then we would parrot your answer back to you and attach an emotion to it. And that was the big problem or the big issue with being a negotiator. If you were ranting and raving and yelling and screaming, and I said, well, Simon, you sound like you might be a little upset. I totally missed what you're saying. You're furious. You're pissed as hell. And that was why it was exhausting to be a negotiator, because you had to get out in the weeds. You had to get out in the mud with these people and kind of parrot and mimic their emotions so that you could develop that trust and eventually get them out. Yeah. You you mentioned before about the extensive testing, like the physical side of it, which I was surprised. I can understand like the mental component and I guess the strain that that would be putting on, on you and being prepared for those scenarios. But why do you think they make it a physical challenge as well? Is there, I don't know, is there something behind that that's, that's relevant? I think part of it is is they want you in good shape. You know, usually a SWAT team for most major metropolitan police departments are usually the best officers. They get the best training. They get the best equipment. So they want you to be in shape. And a lot of that has to do with we were not a full-time SWAT team. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but we carried we carried pagers. And those pagers could go off at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, when you were home and asleep. They could go off when you're working. They could go off when you're at court. They could, you know, so you, you really, it was a very physically taxing job, you know, to start negotiating with somebody say at eight o'clock at night and not finish that negotiation until four o'clock in the morning and then have to go home, get a couple hours of sleep and then be at work the next day or something like that. So they wanted people that were in good physical condition so that they were able to, to basically deal with the rigors of the job. Just one more question about it before, and we'll move on to the, to the cancer. I just want to know, did you have any hindsight moments? Because, you know, we all make mistakes and we all do things, and then in hindsight we go, you know, we should have done that. Did you have any experiences like that? And did they, how did they result? Did they play out more badly in hindsight or not so badly? Like, what was your experience with that? I, I never really had one of those situations. And, and the reason I didn't is because of how we negotiated. So, yes, I would be the primary person. I'd be on the phone or the headset with the individual. But sitting right next to me and listening to what was going on was another negotiator. And then there were three or four, maybe even five negotiators doing what I used to call work in the crowd. So they would get out there and they're like, you know, why are we here? What happened? So as a primary, you might get a note from your secondary that said, don't talk about his mother. Because, you know, what started this was a big fight with his mother. Now, having said that, I will tell you that about 90% of the time, and we were very good at what we did, about 90% of the time, we got the person out safely. But about 10% of the time, the person chose to end their life. And a lot of times, you know, yes, we were dealing with barricaded subjects or people that took hostages, but a lot of times we were going after homicide suspects. You know, we'd get a a call that, you know, just somebody would drop a dime and say, hey, the guy you're looking for who committed that murder is holed up in this apartment. So we would surround the apartment and we would try, try to talk the guy out. And a lot of times they're like, no, I'm not going back to prison. And they would choose to end their life. Yeah. And while that was always tragic, 
and I don't want your audience to think I'm callous. I, I never lost any sleep over that because like I said, I did the very best I could to get you out. I worked with great people and let's face it. I mean, how fair would it be for you, even if you had our training to dump you into a situation where you had no idea what was going on and, and the problem had been festering for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and all of a sudden it comes to a head on this night, and here it is your job to try to get the person out safely. So like I said, did the best we could. We usually didn't have a major screw-up because, in all honesty, we were pretty good at you know making sure we were all on the same page. Yeah. How long did you do it for? Was it a big career? I did it for four, four years. Okay. So you, you got cancer at some point along your journey. Did that happen later on down the track, your first experience with cancer? Just talk to us about that. How did that all start? Yeah, that, I, I, was, I was out of law enforcement at the time. My wife was, has always been the primary breadwinner, so she lost her job. We were living in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time. She lost her job. We had to move to another state. So I was out of law enforcement at the time. I had a school security consulting business, and I was coaching girls high school basketball and I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially, I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor, a friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer you have a very rare form of melanoma, which most, most people think of as too much exposure to the sun and, and it messes with the, the pigment, the melanin in your skin. This has nothing to do with that. This, this rare form appears on the bottom of your feet or the palms of your hands. And because I had this incredibly rare form, I went to a very specialized cancer hospital in Houston, Texas, and that started my 10-year odyssey, as you mentioned, through having my foot amputated in 2018 and having my leg amputated in 2020. And, and so that was 10 years ago when you first got diagnosed, yeah? What's life look like these days? Because obviously you've moved on, you've created motivational check. So I'm assuming that's something you built. Was that a result of having gone through this experience? Because we'll get to the the 10 principles we spoke about, the four truths as well in a sec, but was was that really a byproduct of your cancer experience or do you look back and you think that, that that's actually just my whole life, my life's work pretty much from, you know, from college through to being the, the negotiator and then obviously having the cancer experience as well? I, I think it really was something that I... I needed to do. I remember I, I mentioned my father was dying of cancer when I graduated from college. My dad had end-stage breast cancer back in the late 1980s. And they didn't know what to do with a man with breast cancer. And they basically sent him home to die. And he lived another three and a half years 
and I believe he did because he had a purpose. He had something to do. He was in real estate and he worked up to two weeks before he died. And I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind. And I'm like, you know, when, when I, it's my turn in the barrel here, so to speak, I need to remember that I've got to have something to do. So motivational check was was really the start of I can't just sit around and think about my cancer and, and lay, lay around and feel, you know, how bad I feel. I've got to do something. I've got to do something that is purposeful for me. So that's how motivational check started. And it was really an outgrowth of the cancer. But I think I drew a lot on my experience in athletics, my experience in law enforcement as a negotiator, and, and my experience as a coach, you know, coaching girls and, and, and as a parent and a husband. So a lot of my life went into what I put up on motivational check now. Okay. I love your analogy, 10 principles, and you, you describe it as your uncommon and extraordinary life. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So uh, that was another thing, you know, people kept suggesting that I write a book and I was like, uh, I, you know, really, I'm in, in the middle of this cancer deal. How am I going to write a book? Yeah. And the book was really born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that had moved to the area in Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance and the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then the other conversation was with a young man who reached out to me on social media and asked me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I did want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important, but I wanted to see if maybe I could go deeper with him. So eventually I had these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, I've got a life story that fits underneath that principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three month period after I had my leg amputated and before I started chemotherapy for the tumors that I still have in my lungs, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles and that's how sustainable excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life came to be. That's the book, guys, Sustainable Excellence. I should have mentioned that before. So we'll put a link as well in the notes for people if they want to check that out further. But also, I want to touch on the four truths as well. I just want to know, now, do they coincide with these 10 principles, Terry? How, how did they come about? Are they separate to the actual book itself? Just touch on that as well for us, please. Yeah, they, they, they actually did come separate, and, and they're not in the book. They, they were a direct result of a podcast that I did with a woman whose podcast was called uh, The Three Truths. And so to be on the podcast, you had to have your three truths. And I was like, well, I don't know what my three truths are. You know, I, I, spent, I spent some time trying to figure the, these out and what I should, add, should put. And then I added a fourth one along the way. And, I, and I'll give them to you. I have them on a a post-it note right here on my desk. So I see them multiple times during the day and they kind of get reinforced in my mind. 
The first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one, and this is the one I've recently added, and I look at it more as a legacy truth, and it's this. What you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. Mm -hmm. And I look at those four truths, and I consider them sort of the bedrock of my soul. They're just a good place to start to build a quality life off of. I love the first one because I think there's no, I don't think there's, uh, there's nothing really to teach you how to do this, you know, control your mind. I mean, something we didn't, I never learned as a kid how to control my mind. Something that has piqued my interest the older I've gotten and, and having now moving into this space, you know, but I, I can completely understand. I, I can see it from my own experience too, how if you don't take ownership of that, you know, like, like a weed, like the old analogy, the weeds in the garden, you know, I think it was Jim Rohn that would say that and he'd say, you know, you've got to get to work and really consciously think out, consciously take ownership of your thoughts, your mind and what's going through your head and what you're telling yourself every day. I love this principle. Uh, I'll just, from your perspective, how much has this played a part in your whole attitude towards what you're going through, the amputations, I believe you're still having constant treatment as well. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you you may spend one week every three or four weeks in, in hospital getting some treatment as well, which our listeners might not be aware of. So well, is that still the case? And, and, and how important has it been for you to control your own mind? Yes, that is the case. I, I go to the hospital for a week uh, every three weeks. Uh, I'm in the second off week. I'll start again next Monday. Uh, to, to do that, to do another round of therapy. Uh, I, I'm on a, what's called a clinical trial drug. It's not an approved drug here in the United States. Um, so it, it's, it's something that, you know, there's a lot of testing that comes with it. There's a lot of blood tests. There's a lot of scans. As a matter of fact, this morning, I had a, a CAT scan of my, my whole body to see the, the status of the cancer. But the, the mind situation Yes, it's incredibly important. And I think I was fortunate. I, I mentioned I had those three knee surgeries in high school. And I, and I kind of learned this early in life, this control your mind uh, principle, because when I went back playing basketball after having those three knee surgeries, I remember my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower because of your surgeries and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or university. I I learned then that I had to flip the switch. I had to turn that into something positive, that thought into something positive. And there was a basketball coach here in the United States by the name of Bobby Knight, who coached at the University of Indiana. And he he had a really great quote. He said, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything your physical body is going to do. So I'm real cautious about what I think about or what I let creep into my mind. Don't get me wrong. I mean, 
I'm a human being. I have bad days. You know, I, I, I think negative thoughts. I, I go all that. But we all become what we think. So be very careful what you allow to spend a lot of time hanging out in your mind. There are many tools that people have spoken about, about how to actually take control of your mind, take ownership of your thoughts. Do you have one or two in particular that seem to work for you? Because we're all different. We're all human beings and different approaches are going to have different results for different people. But I don't know, is there one or two that you just think that they really do it for me and they all sort of go to techniques for when you need them the most? I, I do. And, and I think I learned this from being part of a team. And, and I don't think, you know, for me, it was sports. For, I mean, it can be part of a family. It can be part of a business, whatever, whatever team you're on. We're all, we're all on, uh, on a team of some, co- some kind. And I learned this early. And, and I think it was this, that what team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And so, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm on this clinical trial drug that more than likely is not going to save my life. But it may save the life of somebody five years from now or 10 years from now based on all the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood work and scans and things like that. So for me, this is, you know, to go through all the crap that I go through, and I go through a lot when I, when I am at the hospital during that week, I, I shake, I throw up, I have a headache, a fever, all that stuff. It's more, it's bigger than me. It, it's hopefully going to help somebody else down the road that more than likely I'm never, not ever going to, to meet. So I think that's part of it, realizing that, hey, it's not all about you, that it's, it's part of something that, that's bigger than that. And, and I'll give you a, a, a quick story. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a university professor here back in the 1950s that did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water before it would sink and drown. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. Then he took the exact same rats, and he put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water, on average, for 60 hours. Now think about that. The first time, 15 minutes. I'm just not going to fail. I'm going to die. The second time, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe maybe not this week, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year. But at some point in time, our life was going to get better. And number two, just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. Now, I think everybody has a breaking point, but I honestly believe that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. Yeah, I love that story. I think you, we, we might have spoken about that a few weeks back. I think we did. <laughs> and then the fourth one, I just want to touch on the fourth one as well. If you don't quit, you cannot be defeated as well. Now, I would say the two would go hand in hand like with hope and belief, you know, and having that sort of that purpose, that drive to aim for something bigger than yourself. How do you feel about that? Do you feel that the two sort of are coinciding with each other and they work, you know, step side by side in the sense you're just taking one foot and then putting the next foot in front of the other foot. And it's just that constant 
you know, one step after the other mentality. Yes, I, I think that's exactly it. And, and, and the way I think it's pretty self, self-explanatory in terms of, of the truths, you know, you, you don't quit. You can't be defeated. You know, you just keep going. You keep putting one foot in front of the other. But the way I kind of look at it just selfishly is this, that someday all my cancer pain, all this is going to end. You know, it may end through surgery. It may end through some new medication that comes out. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. Yeah, that's well said. It really is. So, and it's just, it's interesting because you've obviously taken one approach, you know, and, and there'd be people perhaps listening to this as well who are going through some health challenge, some issue at the moment. And yeah, it's just refreshing to have this approach that you speak of, you know. Um, I just believe it's, it's just going to serve you so much better than if you wanted to go the other way because inevitably, you know, it's a fork in the road sort of moment and you, you could go either way and it's not right or wrong to choose, you know, which way you want to go. But, you know, one's obviously going to serve you a lot better than what the other road is going to be able to serve you. So yeah, I really commend you for that. And I really want to talk about motivational check now as well because this is your baby. This is what you've built just to talk to us about what it is and what you actually hope to get out of it and what people can get out of it. Motivational check is really a simple concept. It, and, and the title motivational check, check came from when I was in the police academy. Our defensive tactics instructor used to give us that phrase. And he was like, you know, you're having a tough day. You're, and this guy was pretty crazy. I mean, we ran a marathon as part of our time in the police academy. We did all kinds of crazy. Okay. We, we ran to this big, huge fountain, and we did like 30 minutes of calisthenics in like six inches of water. So you're running in place. You're trying to do push-ups down in the – I mean, this guy was pretty over the top, but he, he taught us such great stuff. And, and he gave us this phrase, motivational check, that anybody could scream out or yell out at any time when they were just – I'm just having a tough day. I can't get through this. You know, this is difficult for me. And we would respond as a class, as an academy class. We were the 84th recruit class. And we would respond with a, you know, we would yell back 84 just to let that person know that, hey, we're all hurt, but we're all in this together. And we will get through this as a class. It's not an individual thing. We'll get through it together. So when I was looking for a a title for my blog, And every day on my blog, Motivational Check, I put up a thought for the day. With that thought comes a question about maybe how you could apply that thought into your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which a lot of times is a story or a video that I find online that I think would would help people and stuff like that. Uh, I've got recommendations there for books, recommendations for videos to watch. Uh, and, and things like that. And all my podcasts are on there as well. So it's really the way I look at it, if you need a quick hit of inspiration or motivation, go to motivational check, get that quick hit, and then get on with your life. It's not something that you have to spend a lot of time on if you don't have time. If you do have time, please spend as much time as you absolutely like. But I designed it so that people could go in, get a quick hit, get inspired, get motivated, and then get on with their lives. Awesome. How long have you been at it for? When did you start it? Well, I say I started it in two. 2019 somewhere in that neighborhood yeah okay 
Is there, do you have any programs? Do you, are you looking towards perhaps putting that together if you haven't already? Do you have any programs at the moment? I, I do. Yeah. I, I, I just started, um, that, that was something else. You know, people kept saying, hey, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. Yeah. And I really kind of put it off. Well, then people started to read the book or heard me on podcasts or saw me uh, speak in person and were like, we, we want to do a membership. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if I can do a membership. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work, but I, you know, Hey, I'm still here. Why not work? So I ended up uh, back in June, I started the sustainable excellence membership and it's kind of a deeper dive into my book. So there's, there's on-demand personal development videos. There's weekly group coaching calls. And the thing that I found interesting is that there's also a, a community where you can sort of hook up and, 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 and basically bounce things off of other like-minded leaders and professionals. And I'm not saying the, you know, the group coaching calls and the on-demand videos aren't good. I think they're very good, mm-hmm. but really people, I think get, they get so much more out of sort of like what you and I are doing. Just let's talk about, tell me about your business side. You know, Oh, Terry, I did this or you did that. And, and Oh, maybe I can learn something from that. And, and it's always fun for me to kind of jump into the, you know, those communities and listen to what people are saying in that. So I, I, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me. Like I said, it's, it's very much in its infancy. I mean, it's, it's a few months old. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm still crying, trying to develop it and figuring out what people want and how I can deliver that and stuff like that. But yeah, sustainable excellence membership.com go and check it out. And uh, if you want more information, you can always, there's a, a link there to get a 15 minute call with me and we can talk about it. You can also download a free copy of sustainable excellence of my book there as well. Just on the book. So we spoke about the, the 10 principles in the book. Is that something you can just run past for, for the listeners? As in, have you got them on hand just to sort of. I got the book. Sure. I, I mean, each, each chapter, yeah, each chapter or each principle yeah. is a chapter in the book and, okay. and they are not in any particular order. Number yeah. one isn't more important than number yeah. seven. So, so I'll give them to you. And, and obviously there's a lot more on some of these kind of, sound kind of simple, but there's a lot more kind of underneath them. The first one is enjoy your life. The second one is, and this is the one that resonates with me. I I wrote all 10 of them, but this one resonates with me. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. So that's number two. Number three is you were born to live an uncommon and extraordinary life. Number four, always remain curious and ask questions. Number five, you are the person you're looking to become. Number six, put your God and your family before everything else. Number seven, be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Number eight, and and sometimes I get a hard time about this one. Number eight is fail often, especially when you're young. Number nine, listen more than you talk. That's a lot about what I learned as a hostage negotiator. And then number 10, love is the most important word in the English language. Yeah, I love it. And obviously, if you want to go into detail, then yeah, get the book and sort of dive deep into each of them. I just want to speak about the fear. And you said to fail, sorry, a failure, fail often. You said as often as you can. Failure is a topic where no one likes to fail. I don't know anyone that likes to fail. However, 
you know, the more I understand the process of failure, the more I understand how how much of a necessity it is or how necessary it is to, you know, get to that next level, to, to get yourself from where you are to where you want to be. What's your take on failure and, and why should we fail as often as we can, especially when we're young? Yeah, I, I, I've always believed that the road to success is paved with failure. I mean, we always see successful people, but if you if you drill down into their lives, you, you see the, the blood, the sweat, the tears. You see the times that they failed. I, I mean, I think uh, my daughter, our daughter got my height. And I remember yeah, as a basketball coach, being in the gym with her for hours and hours and hours, you know, working on her shot. Nobody saw that. No, yeah. Nobody, you know, you see the results in the game, but you don't see that. You don't see how many people put in all the overtime so they can eventually have that corner office and, you know, and run their company. You don't see the people that, you know, put in hours and hours and hours before they're allowed to do that surgery that may save your life and stuff like that. So fear is a, is a huge part of, of, and I think back on my own life, how many times where I was like, oh, I should do that. Oh, wait a minute. Eh, maybe I'm not smart enough. Or what are people going to say about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, used to say that I never lose. I either learn yeah. or I win. So as long as you fail and and learn something, or then it's not really a failure. I think, you know, you may be a failure on the scoreboard, but I think you're only a failure if you start blaming somebody else and look for somebody else, you know, to, well, hey, it's not me, it's, it's somebody else. So, so failure is incredibly important in our lives. You, and, but you're right, nobody likes to fail. Nobody starts out, you yeah. know, down the path of starting a business or whatever, or writing a book and say, hey, I'm going to fail. None of us do that. But we also, once we fail, we're like, oh, you know what, I, I must not be any good. That's, again, getting back to control in your mind. No. And I always tell this, especially to young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yeah, there's a, actually, there's a, there's a really good book on it. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm meaning to order this on Amazon. Um, it's by a guy called Daniel Pink. It's called The Power of Regret. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of it before. Okay. No, I haven't. Yeah. The Power of Regret. I'm going to write regret. that down. By, by Dan Pink. That's on my Amazon list of, of books to, to order in. But he basically talks about a study in the book, Terry. And in the study, he proves that the power of or the regret, the pain of regret, like far outweighs the discomfort of actually making change in the present and being uncomfortable and going through that failure process. So I'm not sure how they did the study. I'm paraphrasing this. So I, I don't know exactly, you know, what the controls were or how they did it. But, you know, the gist of it is that it's that regret when you get to the end of the things that you didn't do, that you wanted to do. Like you spoke about that idea you might have, that feeling in your gut that you want to actually try something, yet you hold yourself back. And more often than not, it's because of the responsibilities that we have in our life, maybe the financial responsibilities, the responsibilities of being a parent or whatever it is, and probably just talking ourselves out of it, to be brutally honest, because that, that voice that says, you know, I'm not good enough to do it and who am I to change now if I'm 
30, 40, 50, 60 years old or, or whatever it is. But, yeah, I just found it interesting that I was listening to him on a podcast talk about how just how big a price it is to pay when you don't actually act on something versus actually acting on it and stumbling and failing along the way. So I'm glad you brought that up, Terry. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important to, to fail. I think it's incredibly important to then control your mind, learn what you learn from that failure, and then apply it to whatever you're going to do next. And, and if you do that, you're not going to have any regrets. You're going to, you know, I tried to do this. You know, I always say, I look back at my police career. I was a 37-year-old rookie policeman, which by most accounts is pretty old to be doing that. But that was always my passion. That was always my dream. That was always my purpose. I didn't get to it right away. I got to it later in life. And, you know, you can Google people who were successful later in life, and you'd be surprised the number of people who didn't start their company or their business or wrote their book or, or painted their paintings until they were much later in life. So don't feel that, hey, if you haven't figured it out when you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, that you're done with it. No, keep going. Keep trying to find what that thing is that you're supposed to do, because I promise you if, you, if you search for it with an open heart, you will eventually find it. How old are you now, Terry? 62. 62. And how do you feel? I mean, you radiate this unbelievable energy. I can feel it through, you know, through the microphone, through the video as I'm talking to you. Do you feel pretty good most of the time? Are you up and down still? How, how is your health? I, I am up and down quite a bit. Uh, you know, when I have my treatments, it really kind of beats me up physically. It, it lowers my blood counts and things like that. So, you know, I'm tired and, and, and things like that. But doing things like this, having a purpose mm -hmm. is what keeps me going. And, you know, it, it's it's never been about how long I live. I, my doctor showed me my, my CAT scans, and I have no medical background, but my doctor showed me my CAT scans back in 2020 when I had my leg amputated and I had these tumors in my lungs. And, and I looked at it, I had, I had fluid all around the, the outside, the pleural spaces of my lungs, these big tumors in my lungs. And I looked at him like, how was I alive? And he kind of smiled and shook his head. And he was like, I don't know. Which yeah. said to me that God's not done with me. You know, when I die, how I die, where I die, way above my pay grade. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I spend more time worrying about what I'm supposed to do with the time that I have. Don't worry about the end game of your life. I mean, think about it. But at the same time, don't worry about it. If mm. you do, if you live your purpose in life, death is not nearly as scary as opposed to those people that do what I call live a casual life. And as a result, their hopes, their dreams, their goals become a casualty of that kind of unplanned living. Yeah. I just want to ask you one more question. And I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot here, but this really is all about overcoming limitations and people listening Perhaps they're thinking about something that they want to do, a change that they want to make. But as we do as humans, we have these self-imposed limitations that we put on ourselves, and we just we remain stuck, you know, in this rinse, wash, and repeat cycle. And, you know, before we know it, it's another five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, and we haven't done anything else. What would you say are three things that people could do to try and break that cycle? Would there be three things in particular that maybe they could start thinking differently start acting a little bit differently, what would be the three things that they could start to do today to try and move away and break out of that cycle? 
I'll give you this, and, and this is kind of a story that happened to me recently. I had a nurse ask me, what was it like to have your foot amputated and then have your leg amputated? And I told her, you know, it certainly hasn't been easy. I'm pretty much confined to a wheelchair. I do have a prosthetic. It's taken me a long time to feel comfortable using that. But what I told her was, is that, you know, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. That's who I am, Simon. Uh, You know, that's who you are. That's who everybody's listening to us is. So don't get all caught up in, you know, uh, hey, I got to, you know, I got to look like Arnold when Arnold was in his prime and all that kind of stuff. Worry about more your heart, your mind and your soul. Figure those things out. Figure out how you can develop those. You can improve those. You can get better with those. And if you do, your life is going to be a whole lot more fulfilling And if you spend all this time, I'm not telling you not to eat right and exercise. You you have to do that. That's part of it. But what I'm telling you is spend time on your heart, your mind, and your soul. If you do that, I'm telling you, you're going to have a great life. Awesome advice. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. How do people find you, Terry? Through the website, through Motivational Check? Is there another platform, maybe a social media that you're comfortable sharing with people? Yeah, I You can get to me through uh, motivationalcheck.com. You can leave me a note there. Also on motivationalcheck.com are all my uh, social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, Instagram. I I have all of them. I don't, I'm not as on as many as I'd like to be. LinkedIn is pretty much the place I spend most of my time. But uh, yeah, you can find me there. Send me a note. I'd also, I love to hear from people. I, I respond to everybody who reaches out to me. So if you got a comment, a thought, you just want to shoot the breeze, by all means, please get in touch with me. Awesome. Thanks again, man. It's been, it's been amazing. And I'd love to do this again as well. Stay fit, stay healthy, and we'll catch up again at some point and we'll do a sequel. Sounds great, Simon. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you got value from this, please give us a like and a subscribe. And also share this with someone who you think may benefit having listened to it as well. I wish you all the very best in chasing what is your own version of your limitless potential.